Father, we ask you to do that miracle where you can speak your word through a man and be able to really change lives. We know it's from you, and we ask you to do that today by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you put your word in each of our hearts and make us more like Jesus because we've been here. In his name we pray, amen. Well, last week we studied the temptation account of how Adam and Eve sinned and then tried to hide their shame by covering themselves with fig leaves. What is not recorded for us is what Eve said to Adam after she put on her first fig leaf. She said, does this leaf make me look fat? We're not sure she said that, but the Bible's full of so many great stories, but it's actually, the Bible's actually one great story. In fact, it's God's grand story, and that's the title of our series that we've entered in to this year, 2022. Our desire is to really show how God's grand story in the Old Testament, how it all fits together, and then 2023, really focus on how God's grand story all ties together in the New Testament. So far, what we've done is we've summarized the Old Testament into six key parts, Those six key parts are we start off with creation, and then we have the wanderings under Moses, where Israel's wandering the wilderness, and then we go from the wanderings to the promised land, where Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. Then we have the united kingdom under King David, and then we have, after King Solomon, a divided kingdom, and then finally we have this captivity and teaching of the coming kingdom. And that's the Old Testament. And those six simple parts, beginnings, wanderings, promised land, united kingdom, divided kingdom, and then captivity in the coming kingdom. And so we began last, uh, a few weeks ago, we began by really looking at the beginnings and focusing, we started with the, uh, the focusing on the creation account. And then even last week, we taught about the fall. We saw how after creation, the first humans turned away from God. They chose to go their independent way. And as a result, sin and its terrible consequences entered into this world. And the rest of the Bible after the fall really is how God made restoration possible, how he instituted a plan to forgive sin, to reconcile rebellious creatures to himself, and to begin a new creation within the old one. And by the way, this plan is still being fulfilled today in our lives, and we're part of it. Now, the book of Genesis actually is also easy to summarize. We're summarizing the whole book of Genesis into four events followed by the lives of four people. The four events are creation, fall, the flood, and the division of the nations. The four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and that's the book of Genesis. You have the four events, creation, beginning Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, so the whole creation account, and then follow that by the fall, we get to chapter 3, and we see that we don't have to be reminded we live in a fallen world, but really the reason we do is because the first humans that God created began to question his goodness and then rebelled against his commandments, and then sin and its consequences entered into the world. So we have creation, then we have the fall, 
And then we're going to look at today, we had the flood. Humanity is going to stray so far from God's purposes that he's going to have to start over with one family. The flood, that will be Noah's family. And then next week, we're going to talk about the fourth event, which is the division of the nations. Because what happened is, stubbornly, the people all banded together against God's will, which was to go ahead and fill the earth. They banded together, built the Tower of Babel, which was not for God's glory, but was for their own glory. And so for their own good, what does God do? Well, God is going to come down, and he's going to separate them into different languages and ethnicities and scatter them around the earth. And so we have creation, we have the fall, we have the flood, we have the division of nations. And then we're going to see the rest of the book of Genesis is really about four people. Abraham, God's going to pick one man by the name of Abram, change his name to Abraham. He's going to make a nation out of him with the goal of that nation knowing him and letting the rest of the nations of the world know about him. Abraham has a son named Isaac. That's the next person that Genesis will talk about. God made a promise to Abraham and to Sarah. They believe the promise, and eventually Isaac is born. And Isaac becomes a picture of Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness. And then there's the next person. That's the son of Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob, if you remember, God actually changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob encountered God, but he also wrestled with God. And he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there's the favored son, Joseph, which the rest of the book of Genesis will focus on. Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, he's going to endure a long, excruciating ordeal to become the leader and the provider and protector of his family, but also to save the entire region from famine. And there's the book of Genesis. Four events followed by the lives of four people. Now, so far we've talked about creation and we've talked about the fall. Today we're going to talk about the flood. Now, before we get into this account that we're going to look at starting in Genesis chapter 6, and it's Noah's flood we're talking about. Before we get into it, there's something I think is real important for us to understand. I want you to look at this map. This map up here on the screen is simply a map of the United States. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about here we are in Arlington, Texas. If you're going to build a bridge to New York, if you're going to build a bridge from Arlington to New York and you needed to buy some land for the right-of-way for your highway, if your highway is going from Texas to New York, you would not go buy land in Arizona. Because that is that, that your destination is going to determine the decisions that you make in the beginning. And it's so important that we understand that the end goal, the, our end goal destination influences all of our decision-making processes in the beginning. Now, if someone says, well, why are you built, buying land in Tennessee for the right-of-way? Well, the answer is because my destination is going to need that land. And so I make decisions in the beginning to buy the land I need for that highway to go where I want it to go. Okay, just think about that for a moment because the Bible makes it quite clear that history is God's highway to an appointed future. God himself actually is the chief engineer and the head foreman on this job. History is a highway that leads from creation to consummation. It's engineered by God who's going to direct everything from his sovereign standpoint in the future. So history is going somewhere. 
God appointed the goal of where he wants history to go before the foundation of the world. And under his overarching providence, all the events are going to serve that goal. So here's the question we need to answer before we can make sense out of the flood, the division of the nations, and the picking of Abraham, and so forth. We need to understand this. We need to understand where history is headed and where God is wanting to guide it. And here's the answer. Numbers chapter 14, verse 21 says this. God says, indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's where God is taking history. That is the end goal where he's driving everything is to that end goal where the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is going to be an unstoppable goal. So God is going to arrange and dispose of all the events of history in order to make that end goal happen. Even things like right now, even events like what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, even events that we think, what is happening here? Remember, Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of war leading up to his return, along with things like pestilence and that we've been you know, experiencing COVID, those kinds of plagues and so forth. But none of, those things, none of those things are going to deter God from getting us to his end goal. He will get us there. According to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God says this. Listen to this. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. All the, you know, know, so at the very beginning of history, God already saw the end of history. He saw what he wanted to perform and he knows what he has to do to achieve it, getting from point A to point B. And he says, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. It's unstoppable. That's where this is all going. That means, this is real important now, that means that if things are going in the wrong direction and cannot get where God wants them to go, if they continue in that direction, then expect God to intervene and stop that direction and restart headed in the right direction. Or in other words, If the the end goal cannot be reached by the present direction, then expect God to bring a new beginning, a new start that's headed in the right direction. And that's what we see happening in the book of Genesis. We get to Genesis chapter 6. What's going on? Well, mankind has gotten so evil and is headed in such, such a wrong direction that God has to intervene and start over. God has to destroy the entire human race except for Noah and his family and start over heading the right direction so that the whole earth one day will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's the goal. Okay, then we get to Genesis chapter 11, which we're going to look at next week. We find out that mankind, again, is not filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. No, they're not. What they're doing is they're gathering together at the Tower of Babel. And they're not glorifying God, they're glorifying man. 
So what does God do? God has to intervene again. He's got to go down, confuse their languages, divide the people into different ethnicities, and scatter them throughout the earth. God has to start over again and get things headed in the right direction so that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's where he's headed. So what happens in Genesis chapter 12? Again, keep God's goal in mind, his end goal, which is unstoppable. His end goal in mind, Genesis chapter 12, what he does then is he chooses one man by the name of Abram, changes his name to Abraham, to start a new beginning, to make a nation out of him, a nation that will know God and fear God, but also a nation that will tell the other nations around the world about the one true God. Why? So the whole world will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So God is actively involved in orchestrating the events of history, the events of nations, the events of individuals, so he can reach his end goal, that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And by the way, if your life, this applies to us now, if your life is headed in the wrong direction, don't be surprised if God interrupts your life in some way so he can give you a new start, a new beginning, so you can be headed in the right direction for God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish for you. Because that's how God works. God is going to accomplish his end goal of the whole earth being filled with his glory. He's going to do it. And anytime there's something going in the direction that's going to not work that way, he will intervene and give new starts and new direction. All right, so let's focus on when he does that in Genesis chapter 6 in the flood. Now, let me summarize this whole story of the flood into three simple parts. You have part number one is the wickedness of men. Mankind has become so great, it's going the wrong direction. Can't get where God wants it to get. Part two, God runs out of patience with what's happening on the earth, and he's going to intervene and bring judgment to change the direction. And number three, even in the midst of God bringing judgment, he never surrenders his purpose. His purpose for why he created mankind in the first place. And that is why. So one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So let's read part one here, the wickedness of man. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. That leads us to the second thing. We're going to see what God's going to do about it. We see that God does come to a place where he runs out of patience. God does come to a place where his patience ends and he destroys unrepentant sinners. Genesis 6, 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 6.13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And verse 17, God says that his wrath was going to bring a flood. Verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life, from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. And it did. 
But that's not the end of the story because God still has his end goal in mind. Remember, God created man in his image, and he aims for man to fill the earth with the glory of God that is reflected in man's faith and righteousness. So he's going to preserve one man and his family. And he's going to give a new beginning with his end goal in mind. So he, so he spares Noah and his family with this new beginning. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And you know the story. So God brings great judgment upon the earth through this worldwide flood. And he does kill them all except for Noah and his family. They're spared in the ark. And the Bible tells us that God did that, but also it tells us there's another time he's going to do something like that. And this time may actually occur in the lifetimes of people in this room. Because here's what he says. Now we jump to Matthew 24, the words of Jesus, verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Those who live in that generation before Jesus comes back, we're going to be living in a world where much of the world is living a godless life and thinks nothing about it and thinks nothing about God. But at that time, God is going to come to a place where, just like he did with Noah's, Noah's time, he's going to come to a place where he's no longer going to strive with man anymore. The Spirit of God will be so quenched and so grieved and rejected for so long that God's going to say, that's enough. That's just enough. When that time comes, and I believe it may well be during the lifetime of many of us, the question, of course, is will you be ready? Will you be ready? Most people were not ready. Noah preached for 100 years while he's building the ark. He preached for 100 years. Well, you can be ready if you have an ark of protection yourself. And that ark, of course, for us in this New Testament time period is Jesus Christ. We come to a place of repentance and faith in him. If you truly know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you will be ready. The question, of course, at this point is, do you really know him as your Savior and Lord? Second Corinthians 13.5 says this. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, exclamation mark. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? I think one of those horrifying scenes in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says there's a time coming when many will stand outside the gates of heaven thinking that they're going in and he, and he tells them, I never knew you, depart from me. I mean, I can't imagine a more horrifying moment than thinking that you actually know Christ, being self-deceived about it, believing you're going to heaven and then find out at heaven's doorway that you're not coming in. And Jesus says that's going to happen to many. 
not a few, not a handful, but many. Many will be deceived. That's why verses like 2 Corinthians 13, 5 are important. Test yourself to see that you're in the faith. And I'll tell you, there's a, I have a sense of urgency in my spirit today for every one of us to test ourselves, make sure we're in the faith. Because times are going to only heat up. And there comes a time, you know, there will there come a time where it's too late. There came a time in Noah's day where it's too late to get in that ark. The door was closed. There will come a time in the future where it will be too late. And so, again, test yourselves. There are many who think they're saved or born again. They're not. They're deceived. See, I, the, the, the decision to, follow, to be a follower of Jesus is more radical than most people, church-going people in the West have ever been taught. Here's what Jesus says. Let's just hear his words. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. It says, and he summoned the crowd, he, Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, so Jesus is going to say this to the crowd, not just to his close disciples, but to the whole crowd. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, let him deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. I mean, these are radical words. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That means die to yourself and follow me, Jesus said. If you lose your life, you'll save it. If you try to save your life, hold on to being the captain of your ship. And you'll lose it. It's a radical thing that he teaches. In the West, so many people think becoming a Christian is all, it's all intellectual assent. I mean, I'm, I've been agreeing in my mind to certain, certain information being true. Not realizing that if I truly believe biblically in Christ as Savior and Lord, then I will follow him. This is, this is equal to repenting and believing in Christ is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. If I believe he's Savior and Lord, then I follow him. The decision of saying yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord is radical. Let me just give you this illustration. I've used this before. Some of you have been around and probably seen it. But I want you to imagine a scene. I want you to imagine that you've been in the desert. You got lost. You've been in the desert for days without water. And all of a sudden, on your hands and knees, you hardly have the strength. You are so sunburned. You are parched. You are so thirsty. And you look up ahead of yourself and you see this oasis. But it's not... And you finally crawl to it on your hands and knees, barely can make it. And this oasis does not have a pool of water. What it has is it has a water well with a pump. But next to the water well, it has a jar full of water. And it has an old parchment with instructions. And the instructions simply say, take the jar of water and pour it into the pump. There's a leather gasket that's all dried out. And as you pour it into the pump, you have to pour all of it into the pump. It, you will need every, it says you will need every drop of the water in this jar to moisten that leather gasket so you can actually pump water out of the well. But once you do, once you get that moist, you'll be able to pump out all the water you want and you can drink as much as you want as long as you want. 
But then when you're done, make sure you fill up the jar again and leave it for the next person. And then it says, P.S., I know you're tempted to drink the water out of the jar. Don't do it. You will need every drop to moisten the gaskets in that pump. Don't do it. So now you have a decision to make. Will you believe that the instructions in the old parchment are true and pour all the water into this pump at the risk of your life? I mean, you're, if you, you, you're going to say, I'm willing to bet my life that these instructions are so true that I'm not going to drink one drip, drop of this. I'm going to pour it all into this well. I bet my life on it. See, really, this is a parable of really what it's like to make a decision to follow Christ biblically. And that is deny yourself, take up your cross, die to yourself. And follow him. He is now the captain of your ship. It's a radical thing. But do you believe that the old parchments are true? And do you believe it enough to bet your life on it? See, that's really what's at stake here. If we really believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord, then He can then we want Him to be the captain of our ship. But so many people in Western Christianity have been taught this idea of the gospel is simply agree to some information being true or go on and live your life any way you want. That's why there's going to be so many people deceived on that day when Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me. So my question for you is, have you made that decision really? The decision that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord? Because you can't cut him in half. The Bible says he is both Lord and Savior. You can't have half of him. Have you made that decision that he is the Lord of your life? I tell you, I'm an urgency in my spirit because time, there's a time coming that would be too late to do that. Just like there was a time coming when he couldn't get in that ark anymore. There's a time coming when things heat up on this earth where it's going to be too late. Chances ran, ran out for those who heard Noah preach. They ran out. And by the way, I think an interesting scene to me in the Bible is when Judas betrays Christ. Remember, Judas comes, brings, you know, these soldiers with him. And he does it in the darkened night, and he betrays Christ with a kiss to point out to the soldiers who to arrest because he already sold them out. What's interesting to me about that scene is Jesus never tries to talk them out of it. Chances had already run out for Judas. He already made his decision to betray Christ. And so I just urge you, if you haven't yet made that decision, that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. I'm not talking about, well, I think I did something at 12 or 16 or 23 or 39. I'm talking about today. Today, is he your Savior and Lord? Today. Then make the decision because chances will run out. Chances will run out. There are some of you to say, well, I've made that decision, but in all honesty, I'm not, I'm not walking like that. I, I'm backslidden. By the way, here's the way that you can know if you're backslidden or not. Backslidden simply means that one day you front slid, and now you back way off. Okay, here's three things that you can just kind of do a little self-inventory when that you're backslidden. Number one, you no longer have an intimate relationship with the Lord. 
You no longer feel close. You feel distant. No longer do you want to spend time with him. If it comes, fine. If it doesn't, fine. No big deal. Number two, you no longer hate sin like you used to. You used to hate pornography, but now you give into it. You used to hate lying, but now you tell little white lies at work. Number three, you no longer obey the Lord like you used to. You used to read something in your Bible, and you would just do it. You would just line your life up with it. You saw it, you convicted, and you do it. Or you used to hear something, you know, from the pulpit, and you'd say, that's the word of God, I'm going to do it. And now you kind of say, I pick and choose. I'll pick and choose. See, just even that little simple test, some of you are like, that's me. That's where I've gotten right now. Just between you and God, if that's where you're at, you're backslidden. And to be backslidden really is the same as being lukewarm. Jesus told the church in Laodicea that they were lukewarm, and if you're lukewarm, he spits you out of his mouth. And I don't know what kind of hermeneutical translation gymnastics you can do to try to take the weight of that verse off. But I think exhibit A of lukewarmness, I think, can be found in your prayer life. If you slipped into lukewarmness, it'll be seen in your prayer life. You know, where there's a time when you really, you know, you had, you had a regular prayer time and you really don't anymore. You came to the G-Hop and you're always there every week for that one hour of just saying, I'm going to be here, Lord, one hour a week in here and pray for our missionaries and our church family and, and for my family and blah, blah, blah. And, but now you don't do that anymore. Or I used to have a prayer time in the morning. I don't do that anymore. But somehow you, 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 your, your prayer life is showing your lukewarmness. And I think, I think a church's prayer life shows their lukewarmness. I think that we've had, I think we, I know for a fact we have had hundreds of people that used to be regular in our G House, our Grace House of Prayer, that don't come anymore. Now, I understand COVID and all that, but it's, it's time to get back. I mean, we got to raise the level of prayer in our church, guys, because the level of prayer in the church determines the level of Holy Spirit power. You got low prayer, you got low Holy Spirit power. And if people are talking about Holy Spirit power with low prayer, I'm telling you, it's all hype. And so I'm calling us all back. To, I'm calling us back because it's crucial that we, we really raise a level of prayer. I believe that the church in, I think our church, I think the church in the West, I think the church around the world right now is in desperate need of revival. This whole last couple of years of COVID has caused so many to just slip away into isolation and become lukewarm. And it's time for us to get back on track. It's time for us to pick up our prayer lives. It's time for us to press into God. It's time for us all to get back into ministry. It's time. It's time for revival. And revival always starts with repentance. Always starts with repentance. There is no such thing as revival without repentance. And so today, as we close, I'm going to ask Hosea to come on up here to the keyboards. There's a song that we sang closing last Sunday. Simple song, Come to the Altar. It's basically a repentance time. And I just want to ask those of you who, who, you know, understand that if you've never really, if you've never made Jesus captain of your ship, if you've never said yes to him as Lord beyond just words and saying, Lord, here it is. Here's my life. Spend it any way you want. If you've never done that, let today be the day. And during the song, just come up, make this the altar and just come up and, and give your life to Jesus. And some of you, this is also time that you said, I've done that, but I really have, I've got some lukewarmness in me right now, and I, want, and, I, and I want to come back to being passionate, hot for the Son of God, for his purposes on the earth. Then use this time to come back and say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm casting off this lukewarm stuff. And I just, I'm, I'm all in for you again. I'm all in for you.
I think the Lord is going to be, I think right now, and this, I believe it's a word of the Lord, that he's stirring the waters. He's stirring the waters. There's going to be a release. There's going to be a release of his kingdom power. But right now, it's time for repentance. Let's all stand for prayer. Lord, you know, you know where all of us are. Lord, you know, you know our tendency to justify ourselves and rationalize explain away and get defensive. So Lord, I just pray now you'd break through all that in Jesus' name by the power of your spirit. You'd bring clarity. You'd break through any self-deception in Jesus' name. You'd bring clear understanding. Invite you, your Holy Spirit for the work that only he can do, a conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just begin to stir these waters here. I pray nobody who really knows this time is for them would leave without this time. So, Lord, we ask you to do your work by your spirit. In Jesus' name. So come to the altar. God's speaking to you about it. Then come to the altar. Do business with the Lord. Don't leave without doing that today. invite others just down to come lay hands on our brothers and sisters. Just come on down, slip out of your seat and come just begin to pray for them. You don't even have to know them. Just begin to pray. Just begin to pray. We're all in this together.
Father, we thank you for your heart toward us. We thank you, Lord, that you never reject anyone who's repentant. Thank you, Jesus, how quick you are to forgive. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, right now we just ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us up, Lord, as we do repent. Fill us. As we empty ourselves, fill us. Fill us, Jesus. We want you to be the captain of our ship. We want you to lead us. We ask, Lord, you fan the flame of revival in your church here, church around the world. Fan the spirit of prayer. Lord, prepare your bride, Lord. Show us also how the bride can make herself ready. And we know, Lord, repentance and prayer are key. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would just cause us this week to be finding ourselves in a place of prayer, finding ourselves in a place of humbly submitting to you and repentance and obedience. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out without measure, Lord, beyond anything we've ever experienced in these days. The world's in desperate need to see the bride of Christ look like the bride of Christ. Help us, Lord, for your glory and honor, for your purposes on the earth. And we pray, Lord, you'd speed up the day where the glory of the Lord would fill the whole earth. Speed up that day where you reach your end goal. And, Lord, use us this week in some way, some small way, to make progress toward that end goal. We pray in the name of Jesus.